Section 26 of The Devolutionist and the Emancipatrix. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kirby Bonds. The Devolutionist and the Emancipatrix by Homer Eon Flint. Part 2. Chapter 8. Fire. From the corner of his eyes, Kinney saw Van Emmon turn a gaze of frank admiration at his wife. It lasted only a second, however. The geologist remembered and masked the expression before Billy could detect it. Smith had been electrified by the idea. "'By George!' he exclaimed two or three times. "'Why didn't I think of that? It's simple as A, B, C now!' "'Why?' Van Emmon exulted. All we've got to do is put the idea of fire into their heads, and the job is done. Darn those bees, anyhow. And yet, observed the doctor, it's not quite as simple as we may think. Of course, it's true that once they have fire, the humans ought to assert themselves. We'll let that stand without argument. Will we? Smith didn't propose to back down that easy. Do you mean to say that fire, and nothing more than fire, can bring about human ascendancy? The doctor felt sure. All the other animals are afraid of fire. Such exceptions as the moth are not really exceptions at all. The moth is simply driven so mad by the sight of the flame that it commits suicide in it. Horses sometimes do the same. Humans are the only creatures that do not fear fire. Even a tiny baby will show no fear at the sight of it. Which ought to prove, Van Emmon cut in to silence Smith, that superiority is due to fire, rather than fire due to superiority. For the simple reason that a newborn child is very low in the scale of evolution. Smith decided not to say what he intended to say. Van Emmon concluded, We've just got to give them fire. What's the first step? I propose, from the doctor, that when we get in touch this time, we concentrate on the idea of fire. We've got to give them the notion first. Would you rather, inquired Billy, that I kept the idea from Supreme? Thanks, returned her husband icily. But you might just as well tell her, too. It'll make her afraid in advance all the better. The engineer threw himself back in his seat. I'm with you, he said, laying aside his argument. The rest followed his example, and presently were looking upon Sanus again. All told, this particular session covered a good many hours. The four kept up a more or less connected mental conversation with each other as they went along, except, of course, when the events became too exciting. Mainly, they were trying to catch their agents in the proper mood for receiving telepathic communications, and it proved no easy matter. It required a state of semi-consciousness, a condition of being neither awake nor asleep. It was necessary to wait until night had fallen on that particular part of the planet. A footnote. It should be mentioned that all parts of Sanus showed the same condition of bee supremacy and human servitude. The spot in question 
was quite typical of all the colonies. Van Emmon was the first to get results. Chorus had driven his herd back from the brook at which they had got their evening drink, and after seeing them all quietly settled for the night, he lay down on the dried grass slope of a small hill and stared up at the sky. Van Emmon had plenty of time to study the stars as seen from Sanus, and certainly the case demanded plenty of time. For he saw a broad band of sky, as broad as the widest part of the Milky Way, which was neither black nor sparkling with stars, but glowing as brightly as the full moon. From the eastern horizon to the zenith it stretched a great silvery way, as Van Emmon labeled it, and as the darkness deepened and the night lengthened, the illumination crept on until the band of light stretched all the way across. Van Emmon racked his brains to account for the thing. Then Chorus became drowsy. Van Emmon concentrated with all his might. At first he overdid the thing. Chorus was not quite drowsy enough, and the attempt only made him wakeful. Shortly, however, he became exceedingly sleepy, and the geologist's chance came. At the end of a few minutes the herdsman sat up, blinking. He looked around at the dark forms of cattle. Then up at the stars he was plainly both puzzled and excited. He remained awake for hours, in fact, thinking over the strange thing he had seen in a dream. Meanwhile, Smith was having similar experience with Dulnop. The young fellow was, like Chorus, alone at the time, and he, too, was made very excited and restless by what he saw. Billy was unable to work upon her bee. Supreme retired to a hive just before dusk, but remained wide awake and more or less active, feeding voraciously for hour upon hours. When she finally did nap, she fell asleep on such short notice that the architect was taken off her guard. The bee seemed to all but jump into slumberland. The doctor also had to wait for Rolla. The woman sat for a long time in the growing dusk, looming out pensively over the valley. Chorus was somewhere within a mile or two, and so Kinney was not surprised to see the herdsman's image dancing tantalizingly before Rolla's eyes. She was thinking of him with all her might. Presently she shivered with the growing coolness, and went into a rough hut which she shared with Canora. The girl was already asleep on a heap of freshly gathered brush. Rolla, delightfully free of any need to prepare for her night's rest, such as locking any doors or cleaning her teeth, made herself comfortable beside her friend. Two or three yawns, and the doctor's chance came. Two minutes later, Rolla sat bolt upright, at the same time giving out a sharp cry of amazement and alarm. Instantly, Cora awoke. What is it, Rolla? Terror-stricken? Hush! The older woman got up, and went to the opening which served as a door. There she hung a couple of skins, arranging them carefully, so that no bee might enter. Coming back to Canora, she brought her voice nearly to a whisper. Canora, I have had a wonderful dream. 
ye must believe me when i say that it were more than a mere dream twere a message from the great god mounath or i be mad rolla the girl was more anxious than frightened now ye speak wildly quiet thyself and tell what thou didst see it were not easy to describe said rolla getting herself under control i dreamed that a man very pale of face and most curiously clad did approach me while i was at work he smiled and spake kindly in a language i could not understand but i know he meant full well this be the curious thing cunora he picked up a handful of leaves from the ground and laid them on the trough at my side then from some place in his garments he produced a tiny stick of white wood with a tip made of some dark red material this he held before mine eyes in the dream then spake very reassuringly as though bidding me not to be afraid well he might cunora he took that tiny stick in his hand and moved the tip across the surface of the trough and behold a miracle what happened breathlessly in the twinkling of an eye the stick blossomed blossomed cunora before mine eyes and such a blossom no eye ever beheld before its color was the color of the poppy but its shape most amazing its shape continually changed cunora it danced about and rose and fell it flowed even as water floweth in a stream but always upward rolla incredulously ye would not awaken me to tell such nonsense but it were not nonsense insisted rolla this blossom was even as i say a living thing as live as a kitten and it bloomed behold the stick was consumed in a moment or two the man dropped what was left of it i stooped so it seemed to pick it up but he stopped me and set his foot upon the beautiful thing she sighed and then hurried on saying something further also reassuring this angel brought forth another of the strange sticks and when he had made this one bloom he touched it to the little pile of leaves behold a greater miracle cunora the blossoms spread to the leaves and caused them to bloom too cunora was eyeing her companion pretty sharply ye must take me for a simple one to believe such imagining rolla became even more earnest yet it were more than imagining cora twere too vivid and impressive for only that as for the leaves the blossoming swiftly spread until it covered every bit of the pile and i tell thee that the bloom flowed as high as thy hand moreover after a moment or so the thing faded and died out just as flowers do at the end of the season all that was left of the leaves was some black fragments from which arose a bluish dust like unto the cloud that ye and i saw in the sky one day then the stranger smiled again and said something of which i cannot tell the meaning once more he performed the miracle this time he contrived to spread the blossom from some leaves to the tip of a large 
piece of wood which he took from the ground. "'Twas a wonderful sight. Nay, hear me further, as Canora threw herself with a grunt of impatience back on her bed. There is a greater wonder to tell. Holding this big blooming stick in one hand, he gave me his other, and it seemed as though I floated through the air by his side. Presently we came to the place where Chorus's herd lay sleeping. The angel smote one of the cows with the flat of his hand, so that it got upon its feet, and straightway the stranger thrust the flowing blossom into its face. The cow shrank back, Canora. It was deadly afraid of that beautiful flower. That is odd, admitted Canora. She was getting interested. Then he took me by the hand again, and we floated once more through the air. In a short time we arrived at the city of the masters. A footnote. Having no microscopes, the Senusians could not know that soldier bees were unsexed females. Hence, masters. Before I knew it, he had me standing before the door of one of their palaces. I hung back, afraid lest we be discovered and punished, but he smiled again and spoke so reassuringly that I fled not, but watched until the end. With his finger he tapped lightly on the front of the palace. None of the masters heard him at first, so he tapped harder. Presently one of them appeared, and flew at once before our faces. Had it not been for the stranger's firm grasp, I should have fled. The master saw that the stranger was the offender, and buzzed angrily. Another moment, and the master would surely have returned to the palace to inform the others. Then the stranger would have been punished with the head-out punishment. But instead the angel very deliberately moved the blossoming stick near unto the master, and, behold, it was helpless. Down it fell to the ground, dazed. I could have picked it up, or killed it, without the slightest danger. Another master came out, and another, and another, and for each and all the flowing blossom was too much. None would come near it wittingly, and such as the angel approached with it were stricken almost to death. When they were all made helpless, the angel bade me hold my hand near the bloom, and I was vastly surprised to feel a great warmth. Twas like the heat of a stone which has stood all day in the sun, only much greater. Once my finger touched the bloom, and it gave me a sharp pain. Canora was studying her friend very closely. Ye could not have devised this tale, Rolla. Tis too unlikely. Is there more of it? A little. The angel once more took me by the hand, and shortly set me down again in this hut. Then he said something which seemed to mean, With this magic bloom thou shalt be free from the masters. They fear it, but ye, and all like ye, do not. Be ready to find the blossom when I bid thee. With that he disappeared, and I awoke. Tell me, do I look mad to thine eyes? Rolla was beginning to feel a little anxious herself. Conora got up and led Rolla to the entrance. The glow of the silvery way was all the help that the girl's cat-like eyesight needed. She seemed reassured. He looked very strange and excited, Rolla, but not mad. Tell me again, what's 
thou didst see and hear, that I may compare it with what ye have already told. Rolla began again, and meanwhile, on the earth, the doctor's companions telepathically congratulated him on his success. He had put the great idea into a fertile mind. Presently they began to look for other minds. It seemed wise to get the notion into as many Sanusians' heads as possible. For some hours this search proceeded, but in the end, after getting in touch with some forty or fifty individuals in as many different parts of the planet, they concluded that they had first hit upon the most advanced specimens that Sanus afforded, the only ones, in fact, whose intellect were strong enough to appreciate the value of what they were told. The investigators were obliged to work with Rolla, Dulnop, and Chorus only. Upon these three depended the success of their unprecedented scheme. Rolla continued to keep watch upon Supreme, and toward morning, that is, morning in that particular part of Sanus, the architect was rewarded by catching the bee in a still drowsy condition. Using the same method Kinney had chosen, Billy succeeded in giving the soldier bee a very vivid idea of fire, and judging by the very human way in which the half-asleep insect tossed about, thrashing her wings and legs and making incoherent sounds, Billy succeeded admirably. The other bees in the hive came crowding around, and Supreme had some difficulty in maintaining her dignity and authority. In the end she confided in the subordinate next in command. I have had a terrible dream. One of our slaves, or a woman, much like one, assaulted me with a new and fearful weapon. She described it more or less as Rolla had told Kenora. It was a deadly thing, but how I know this I cannot say, except that it was exceedingly hot. So long as the woman held it in her hand, I dared not go near her. See to it that the others know, and if such a thing actually comes into existence, let me know immediately. Very well, Supreme. And the soldier straightway took the tale to another bee. This told, both proceeded to spread the news, bee fashion, so that the entire hive knew of the terror within a few minutes. Inside an hour, every hive in the whole city had been informed. Give them time now, said the doctor, and they will tell every bee on the planet. Suppose we want a couple of weeks before doing anything further. The more afraid the bees are in advance, the easier for Rolla and her friends. Meanwhile, Chorus, after a sleepless night with his cattle, had driven them hurriedly back to the huts surrounding the experimental station. Here the herdsman turned his herd over to another man, and then strode over among the huts. Outside one of them, probably Rolla's, he paused and gazed longingly, then gave a deep sigh and went on. Shortly he reached another hut, in which he found Dulnop. "'I was just going to seek,' he exclaimed the younger man. "'I have seen a wondrous sight, Chorus.' The two men came to compare notes, finding that each had learned practically the same thing. 
Chorus, being denied the right to visit any woman, save Cunora, Dulnop hurried to Rolla and told her what he and the herdsman had learned. The three testimonies made an unshakable case. By the great god Mounoth, swore Chorus in vast delight when Dulnop had reported, we have learned a way to make ourselves free, as free as the squirrels. Ay, agreed the younger, we know the method. But how shall we secure the means? Chorus gave an impatient gesture. "'Twill come in time, Dolnop, just as the dream came. Meanwhile we must tell every one of our kind, so that all shall be ready when the day comes to strike. Then—his voice lost its savagery and became soft and tender—then, Dolnop, lad, ye shall have thy Canora, and as for Rolla and I— End of Part 2 Chapter 8